You're listening to This Little Light, a podcast about falling in love with music, hosted by me, Flea, and produced by Cadence 13 and Parallel. In this episode of This Little Light, I speak with Stuart Copeland. Well, for the most part, a career in music separates out the charlatans because you don't get no sex, you don't get no money, you don't get no nothing but a lot of headaches and a lot of toil, but it's the love of music. I tried everything. Just music kept dragging me back. I kept finding myself back in a band, caring more about that than anything else. Best known as the drummer for The Police, the guy's amazing. You know, he's composed operas, ballets, film scores. He's worked with great directors like Francis Ford Coppola, John Hughes, and Oliver Stone. The thing that inspires me about Stuart is, you know, just as a young musician, His take on music is so unique. The way he played drums, the way he incorporated all these different styles from Arabic music and from reggae into the being in a rock band, like the police really shifted the idea of how drums work and how rhythm works in popular rock music and really changed the attitude of millions of young musicians, including myself. In this conversation with Stuart, we're going to hear about what it's like to be in a band. And this is something I relate to really deeply, to be in a band where you're so close with a group of people under an enormous amount of pressure for a long period of time. And how do you deal with it and remain healthy? And how do you deal with it and keep growing outside of the band? And this is something that I understand, something that I really truly relate to. And it was great to hear Stuart talk about it in an open and candid way. And um, this is very exciting. Stuart Copeland, man, the guy made his mark on music history and it will last forever. Stuart, dude, thank you so much for coming to do this. It's so nice to see you. Well, it's a pleasure to chat. Uh, You know, we've met a bunch of times in kind of public places, parties, lots of people milling around. But now that we've got the whole world listening and nobody else butting in, we can talk. Yeah, man. You know, I I don't know how much they told you about this particular podcast that I'm doing here. Specifically, I I started this music school like 20 years ago. And, you know, I started the school because I just wanted kids to have an opportunity to learn music. But I'm so fascinated with every person's music education, you know. Well, I'm fascinated by yours, as a matter of fact. Right when you were on top of the world, rock God, you decided to go ahead and take music theory classes. How do you enjoy that? Oh, man, that was so fun. I, you know, I was really burnt out on being in the band and all the, man, you know, how emotional it can be and how unhappy it can be sometimes, you know. I mean, you know about all that. We can talk about all that if you want. (laughs) But I just wanted to get away from the band for two years and didn't know what I was going to do. And then I just got the idea to go and study music academically, which I had never done. When you got back to the band room and you now know what an F-sharp minor is, did they look at you funny? No, they were, I think, happy because I had more to offer. There's the scenario of the singer and the drummer in a band have kind of a bond because neither of us are really sure if we even are actual musicians. You know, in the middle of the jet, you know, the keyboard player and the guitar player, they're talking about their stuff, you know, uh, F sharp minor and stuff. And the drummer and the singer are looking at each other, you know, wondering, are they talking about you or are they talking about me? I mean, yeah. And the bass player, who's usually the drummer's best friend, he's kind of like a leg up because he he knows the F sharp part. And he because it's a note, it's that second fret on the bottom string. Ah, I got that. I got F. It's the minor part that he's not so sure about. But now that you've had your music education, you can tell them all about it. <laughs> yeah. No, I definitely 
got um, able to speak about music in, in more academic terms, you know. Now, some people are fearful, particularly in the rock and roll world. Um, they're fearful that uh, music education will interfere with those instincts that you mentioned. Uh, did you find any of that at all? I mean, now that you know kind of the structure, you, you've looked behind the curtain of the mechanics of what you've been doing your whole life. Did it in any way diminish your intuition? No, I call bullshit on that that prejudice by yeah, uneducated, uneducated rock musicians. It's like the more you know, the more colors you have and the, the more adequately you're able to express yourself, whether it's in like the simplest context in the world or a more complicated one. Like I don't like not knowing stuff can make you work with restraint. And I think restraint can be very valuable, like having only simple tools to use are just as valid as having like a much more, a wider array of tools. But I like having more tools, you know, and well, I, it's, it's like uh, when you constrain talent in a way, it squeezes it out and makes it more intense. For instance, a good example is black and white photos versus color. Just working with light and shade, somehow that squeezes more intensity into the dramatic effect. And the same is true of music, you know. Uh, when you squeeze it down to three chords, somehow they have more impact than huge, wide vocabulary. And yet, adding that vocabulary to the simple formula, if you can hold on to it, definitely makes it a richer experience. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think in most art forms, you know, you look at like when the talky movies came in, you know, everything changed. Like it became this completely different art form, but... Yeah, a lot less eyebrow movement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, the acting changed completely. But like the imagination of what a dialogue could be, like the way it made the listeners or the, the viewers' mind work is completely different than when you're actually hearing a specific dialogue as opposed to filling in the blanks of all the possibilities of what it could mean to your life, you know? Years ago, I um, scored a black and white silent film from the 20s, the, the, the original Ben-Hur. Wow. This huge, huge film, a silent black and white, and I scored it for full orchestra. And I went out and played shows with it. And they run the movie on a big screen. There's a big-ass orchestra and me banging stuff. And um, the acting was, as you say, completely different. A lot of eyebrow action. Yep. And then they would sort of look at each other and look astonished, look angry, look happy, look sad. Uh, and then there would be a card saying what they're thinking. But it did mean a completely different language, a different communication process to the audience so that they know what's going on. And it's all about spectacle. But yeah, there's plot as well. So they have to explain it. Wow. Obviously, no CGI. And it's much more exciting, you know, in the same way that if you see a band and uh, you're stuck in one seat and you watch them for the whole show, it has more impact than if you're watching a video shoot where you got 10 different angles, you got close-ups, you got everything. But just that experience of watching that one locked-off shot can somehow be more intense. So in this old movie, they, they don't cut around. There's no CGI, but you feel it. You are there in the sea battle when the, uh, one of the ships catches fires genuinely with all the extras on board. It's a real spectacle happening right in front of the camera, and there's no faking it. It's humongous. You know, add a big-ass orchestra and me banging stuff, and it's a, it's a heck of a show. Wow, incredible. And I could go down that angle for a long time in this conversation. But I, I think it might be interesting, since your, your focus here with your podcast is music education, you know, I think it would be a great benefit to a lot of people who are interested in you and what you have to say to learn that a music education will not screw up your rock and roll. Huge, huge. 
And I, I wish that I would have learned it when I was younger. You know, I really do. It's neato, cool. You know, you've been doing this your whole life. What's going on here? What is this that I'm doing? And it's kind of fascinating to find out. So you talking about writing the score, big orchestral score for a, an old silent version of Ben-Hur, which gets me thinking like, you know, obviously like most people, when I first became aware of you as the drummer in the police, when I was a teenager, and um, for those of us, you know, musicians around my age, you know, I, we kind of came up on your coattails and admiring your playing very much and the way that, that the three of you guys interacted with one another. Can we talk about, like, how you started getting into playing music and, like, what was the thing? Was there, like, uh, when you were a little boy, were there, like, aha moments that made you fall in love with the idea of playing drums and were drums your first instrument? Like, how did you start playing music? Well, my first instrument was trombone because my daddy was a trumpet player, jazz guy. Uh, he awesome. later on joined the Army during the war, became a, a, a spy, um, and long story but he always considers himself to be a jazz trumpet player. Awesome. And I was the youngest of four, and uh, he put instruments into the household, hoping they would take, and none of them did. My siblings ignored them. Uh, although two of my brothers big, have the best ears in show business and created a whole industry in rock and roll. Uh, another long story. But the fourth child, that's me, by the time I came along, whatever instruments in the house weren't broken, I soon broke them because I wouldn't leave them alone. I was banging on every, blowing on everything, plonking on the piano, everything, uh, strumming the guitar. But the drums just seemed to be the one that leapt forward. My father got me lessons right away. Um, I was, you know, it, the minute he saw the glimmer of interest, I was there getting lessons, how to hold my sticks and everything. But I was kind of a late developer and a scrawny kid, and I longed for adult masculinity. Uh, all my buddies were kind of growing up and I was still kind of, you know, a, a, a little kid, the, the youngest sibling. But as soon as I hit a drum, bang, I am now a hairy ass silverback swinging through the trees, banging logs, you know, and it was instant masculine adulthood, uh, just from making a louder noise. How old were you at that point when you started with the drums? Well, I started with music at seven ish. Uh, but I started hitting drums maybe around 10 or 11. Mm. And there was another factor. It was right about then, uh, the band in Beirut, Lebanon, at the American Community School there, uh, the Black Knights, their drummer went back to the States. And, uh, of course, my brother, who was the coolest kid on campus, hey, Ian, you play drums? So he was going to be the drummer. But it turned out he couldn't play them, and his kid brother was much better at it, so he got me the job. He was still my agent, by the way, for the next half century. And... So playing in this band at the uh, British Embassy Beach Club, there was Janet McRoberts dancing. I'm banging away. We're playing uh, We Gotta Get Out of This Place. And there's Janet McRoberts, all 15 years old of her. <sighs> and I'm 12, and she's dancing to my beat. I'm making her body move. Oh, my God. That was just such an uplift, such a powerful jolt of what life is all about and what I want to do with my life. Uh, that it kind of stuck. Mm. I can't help but go back just a little bit that your dad was a jazz trumpet player. This is really cool, man. Did he play? Uh, yeah, that's why I don't play jazz now. <laughs> that's why I'm kind of immune to jazz. Right. But but you heard a lot of jazz when you were a kid. Oh, do, you, yeah. do you remember it affecting you at all? Oh, well, it was wrong jazz. 
white big band jazz, Stan Kenton, Woody Herman. Wow. Uh, Buddy Rich. I, I still get Buddy Rich. I love Buddy Rich. And there are a few in there that I like. You know, you know, when I was a kid, I, I met Woody Herman once and I was so excited because I, I knew a guy who played trumpet with Woody Herman, but it wasn't your dad. No, no, he didn't play with Woody Herman. He was a fan of Woody Herman, but he did. He did play a couple of gigs with uh, Glenn Miller Wow! to his great, uh, you know, shame because he considered Glenn Miller to be pop music of his day. And he didn't brag about it, but it kind of word got out. But that was before the war, and he did sessions. He actually must have been a pretty good session man, because I got his trumpet sitting right over there. Uh, wow. It's a 1948, if I got the year right, or is it 28, uh, Con Copriron. And it's a very fan. it's like a Gibson SG of its day. So he must have been earning money. He was the son of a doctor in Alabama. So he had to earn that trumpet, uh, which is pretty fancy. Wow. Yeah. You know, when I was a kid, this is a little tangent, but my mom told me that Glenn Miller was a racist because he said, pardon me, boy, is this a Chattanooga choo-choo? <laughs> so that was my, uh, my education about Glenn Miller when I was a kid, but I loved it. Well, what year was that where your mother noticed? Because now everybody would see that, but... The 60s. Yeah, that's way, way, way ahead of her time. I mean, she was very uh, aware of that distinction, which everyone in her generation would never have noticed. I'm just guessing. Yeah, I guess my mom was, was thinking that way, you know, or maybe someone told her that. I don't know. But I, you know, I really like Glenn Miller's music. Yeah, I do too. It's pretty. It's fun, man. It's, it's fun music, you know. And I mean, it's look, I don't like that as much as the Duke Ellington Big Band or the Fletcher Henderson Orchestra or Cab Calloway's Band. Oh, there you go. That's the right jazz. That's the right stuff. It's a lot more ferocious when it comes to big bands, you know. Yeah. But I, I often think today, like, I'll be like, like, I like to dance, you know. And there's a good day, GJ going, and they're, and they're playing some funk and stuff. Like, I nothing could make me happier than like five hours on the dance floor. And I could just imagine, like, you know, I go out and there's a good DJ. Imagine if I went out and it was like Duke Ellington playing. You yeah. know what I mean? Like a really great orchestra. How thrilling and visceral that must have been. Like those kind of arrangements and musicianship and a night out. Like it must have been otherworldly. Yeah, it was. It was all live and all about dancing. Yeah, so cool. We're going to take a quick break. When we're back, Stuart describes his childhood in Cairo, Beirut, and England, and how it shaped his taste in music, including the similarities he found between reggae and Arabic music. So you start playing drums, and with your education... How much of it was feeling of just like wanting to make Janet Roberts' ass move? And how much of it was like your mathematical brain, your, your brain of like, okay, well, this part's in 2-4, so I have to put the accent on this beat or that beat. And syncopation is when you're going straight and then you throw an accent in there. And like, how much uh, of your education was, would you say, academic? And how much of it was just you trusting yourself and your feeling and the excitement of doing it? Well, there are two parts to it. The education part was all about what you just said. You know, the accent here for for a bar, that's called a quarter note and yada, yada, yada. Uh, and I'd have lessons on that, uh, which kind of were work. And as soon as the lesson was over, I'd go back and just start banging stuff and, and getting all animal on it. And uh, occasionally would remember, oh, yes, I'm supposed to practice my flamadiddle and my paradiddle <laughs> in my mammy daddy role. Uh, yeah. But that was all kind of parallel and almost it, 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 it informed it improved it definitely made 
all the chops that I developed later work better because I, I was holding my sticks properly and I had those rudiments, you know, ingrained so that when I rebelled, uh, I had the technique and I had the tools to do what I wanted to do. You know, I was raised on jazz and I thought that's what music was all about. Meanwhile, by the way, my mother was listening to Debussy and Ravel and Stravinsky and Karl Orff and Aaron Copeland, for that matter, uh, which is all 20th century orchestral music, not your Mozart and your Beethoven, which also leaves me a little cold. But the 20th century orchestral music, that had a much more powerful emotional impact uh, from way earlier. You know, when I was uh, five, crawling around on the floor, and my parent, my mother went to, you know, uh, Persia and up to Isfahan and bought these incredible Persian rugs. And I, I began my life nose down in those Persian rugs and those complex patterns, which are a combination of chaos and geometry, are exactly what music is all about for me, a, a mix of, of wildness and order in a strange tension. and. Uh, so that music really had its effect, but the technique part, I always was kind of interested in, uh, but, you know, so when I went to college, I majored in music and actually learned, you know, figured bass and four-part harmony and the fundamentals of it. And then when I became a professional musician, I never saw another page of music for 10 years or 10, a long time, not till I got my first job as a film composer, uh, when the director, Francis Coppola, turns around and says, you know, that's great, Copeland. We need strings. And I had to come up with a string chart. Well, I had these chords, which were all footballs, whole notes. And then uh, I put them on a page painstakingly. I couldn't play them. I could play each chord and then move to the next chord. I could either play the right chords, no rhythm, or I could play cool rhythm with any old notes. So I put them on the page and I had my session for this film score. It's called Rumblefish. And uh, first thing is I called the... Um, contractor and say, okay, director wants strings. Send me some strings. And he says, okay, fine. How many? I don't know. Strings. More than one. And so I get about 16 uh, folks come in and uh, I get into the usual routine. You know, it's like you get a guitar player in for a session. You talk him up. You get him excited. He brings in his, his Les Paul, three Stratocasters and an SG and some other guitar you never heard of. And he's got his foot pedals and everything. And you start talking, okay, this scene, Rusty J looks at the girl, there's love in his eyes. I need to feel that yearning, anxious, you know, yeah. And he's got great, cool, cool, cool. And he's, and he comes up with stuff and you work with him and it's a wonderful afternoon. These guys come in, the orcs come in, they look at the page and I'm going through all this. And they, first of all, they say, well, maestro, do you want us to play what's on the page here or whatever the fuck you're talking about? Uh, uh play the page. Couple things. First of all, they're done. 20 minutes, they're done. That's it. You show them it on the page and they play it. Second of all, wow, that's really pretty. How did you have the harmonic knowledge to do that? Like to understand how harmony and chord movement work to write for um, a string group? Well, I had majored in music in college down in San Diego on uh, Point Loma. And I knew how chords worked and how to avoid parallel fifths and everything. Right. Okay. Uh, in fact, one of my pieces of homework for, for school there was a string of chords. Okay, everybody, go home, write 16 bars. All right. Yeah. And I already, since I was at, you know, the obligatory piano time, I still can't play worth a darn, but I could come up with cool stuff and these chords yeah, yeah. that I sort of had. And uh, so I bring it back to class and she runs down everybody's thing. Okay, Johnny, this is perfect. Uh, Charlie, you got some parallel fists. Okay, Stuart. And she plays down each piece. 
And for the first time, I'm hearing my creation actually played the notes after each other. Oh, I'm completely trans, sitting at the back of the class, of course, sobbing <laughs> in my own creation. She looks up and says, Stuart, you know, you got parallel fifths here, but I kind of see why you did that because it kind of leads interestingly into yada yada. You know, Stuart, this is actual music. <laughs> oh, you know, that might sound like faint praise, but oh, that was all I needed. You know, validation. That's incredible. Yeah, that's God, that's so exciting. So you're a little kid and you're playing drums and you just said something that I didn't know. And you mentioned Beirut. You're in Beirut? Oh, yeah. Well, when I was born in Virginia, uh, my daddy was away on business. He was busy installing a dictator named Gamal Abdel Nasser in uh, Egypt. Um, and then when I was two months old, uh, I was shipped over to join the family there. And uh, I didn't really get back to the States till I was 18. We went from uh, Cairo a few years later. We moved to Beirut, Lebanon, which is where I did all my teens. And then it got hot for my dad there. Uh, his best friend turned out to be a British double agent working for the KGB. And um, so I was shipped off to boarding school in England, where I kind of finished my teens before getting back to California at 18. Wow. By the way, it, there was another big epiphany over there in England when I was in this boarding school. And the Christmas service was in Wells Cathedral. And I was playing in the band and making too much noise as usual, rattling and tapping and doing noisy drummer stuff. And uh, so Mr. Fox sent me away during the Christmas service there. <laughs> and the church is, the cathedral is full of a thousand voices singing Christmas carols with the parents and teachers and students and everything. And I was sent off to the other, away, to the other part of the cathedral, which is another cathedral. There's two of them joined back to back. And it's flood lit from outside, all the stained glass windows and the Christmas carols rising unto the heavens. That, okay, the first part was all about making Janet McRoberts move, but this part was about Godhead. I mean, I'm not religious and I wasn't then, but I sure got the power of music and just its absolute, infinite, powerful beauty and realized that this is what I'm for. Wow. That is unbelievable. That's like... I mean, both of those things, like Janet McRoberts and, you know, yearning into the, the, the massiveness of the cosmos and divinity or whatever you want to call it. I mean, I'm not religious either, but I am like I pray and stuff and I, I believe in God, but, oh, yeah. but I don't have any religious structure. But the idea of reaching up to the heavens and everything that that implies in terms of all of humanity and the planet and all that, but also kind of like when you're reaching up for it. I think you open yourself up to channeling it. And just the idea of that, of being a yeah. vehicle for some bigger thing. That's right. You know, is a, a real motivating factor. Absolutely. You know, because it, it's, it, it's bigger, you know. And when, it, when my time came, we were playing that song, a rump-a-pum-pum. And I, I just played one tom-tom. That was my gig, was one song, one tom-tom, <laughs> rump-a-pum-pum. But I got there, and it's time for that song. And I'm sitting there at my tom-tom. And all the voices are silent with the, the flowers and the lights and the beauty of the occasion. And it's my time. And I started off and I am the, the helmsman of this mighty ship. I am nothing. I am no one. I am merely an instrument. And I just felt infused with that duty, that power, that humility of just being a part of this enormous thing. That, that, that kind of leaves a mark. Yeah, man. Incredible. So when 
I was like, gosh, I don't know, like 16 years old or something like that when you guys put out the first police record. Um, And we were so amazed because the rhythms that you were playing were much different than any rhythms that we had heard in rock music before. Well, let me ask you, had you discovered reggae by that time? Well, a little bit. I, I knew some reggae, yes. I knew, you know, I knew Bob Marley, but not a lot. Yeah. I didn't know much about it. And so, yeah, you were playing reggae rhythms. But when I hear you talking about your mom going to Iran, about living in Egypt, about living in Beirut as a kid, I'm imagining that not just Jamaican rhythms, but you're hearing different types of rhythms than kids who grow up, grew up hearing Chuck Berry in America or hearing purely American music. And um, how much that must have influenced your education and like you're your beginning to have an idea of how a drum functions in a group and what you're going to do. Like, is that, what do you think about that? Absolutely. Uh, that's my secret sauce, <laughs> which I didn't realize till years later. Uh, it just so happens that reggae and baladi rhythm, which is basically country, you know, mountain country music, uh, of Arabic music, they have a couple of foundational structural components that are very similar, which is that they hide the one and they land hard on beat three of the bar. <gasps> two, three, four, <gasps> two, three, four, nothing, two, three, four. Uh, and they both have that kind of structure, that foundation. And so when um, I discovered, you know, I was a DJ by this time I was up in Berkeley, UC Berkeley, um, and I was a DJ at KLX. Uh, and the reggae records started coming in, starting with Bob Marley, like yourself. Um, I kind of got it. But then later on in 77 in London, when Topper Heaton and The Clash, they started to attempt white boy reggae. Uh, and I could hear them, all the drummers, all of us were listening to reggae. And, wait a minute. What's going Wait, what? What? The snare drum and the kick together on three? Whoa. Yeah. Uh, uh, up, you know, upside down and backwards. Uh, I think Topper was the first guy to attempt it. But when I got to it, I had it already was in my DNA to play upside down and backwards. And so I probably found it a lot easier and could do it more with a more fluid, more natural, elemental feel than these London kids trying to figure it out and, and, and replicate it. So that was my, my secret weapon. And by the way, there's someone else who deserves credit for this uh, introduction of reggae into rock and roll which was um, Don Letts. He was a DJ in London. And in the punk clubs, the Roxy and the Vortex and the 101 Club, they had to chill. Uh, even punks must chill. But there's no such thing as chill punk music. So the DJ started playing dub reggae, was suitably hostile and dark and menacing and pissed off, but was chill at the same time. And so all of us hanging out in these London clubs in between bands got exposed to this reggae dub and we all kind of heard it around the same time. We're all trying to figure it out at the same time. Yeah, those rhythms are so trippy and, and fun. And, and so I still feel like in the rock world still, there's so few drummers that can play a reggae groove, you know? It really negates everything you've learned about, you know, one and three, two and four. It's just, the, it's just upside down from what your whole body and your synapses are designed for. Down on the foot up on the snare, down on the foot. Yeah. Turn that bass backwards 
and you're just going to be uncomfortable yeah. uh, unless you grew up that way. Yeah, well, I feel like it's like I know for Chad, our drummer, that growing up for him, John Bonham was the big one, you know? Oh, yeah. But then after John... Oh, you can hear that. But then after John Bonham, it's you. Ah, shucks. Well, because he, he, he has said a few times that he's, you know, I don't get reggae. I mean, I love it. But I, how do you do that? Yeah. Uh, there's a guy who could do most anything. That guy is a tower. And for him, to, I'll bet you he can. You got to push him, Flea. Yeah. Once in a while, we, we, we do play reggae grooves, but he usually has a different way. It's just not his nature. You know, it's the yeah. other stuff is so deeply. Well, that's good. That's good. You don't want to slavishly copy something. No. For him to change it and do his own version. That's, that's good. That's progress. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, so we all develop and we learn rhythms and depending on what we're exposed to and our nervous systems and, and the things we grow up with when we're really young and, and our, our own like innate curiosity, like some people have it, some people don't, you know, also like your motivation. Are you playing music just because you want to get money or fame or sex or, yeah, of course we all like all that stuff, but is it, is it also being lost in the process and not as a means to an end, but just in that moment when you're making music and you're so happy because you're like, wow, I'm doing, my body is like being at its highest purpose right now. I'm completely satiated playing right now. And I know that. Well, for the most part, a career in music separates out the charlatans. It does. Um, because for you, cause you don't get no sex. You don't get no money. You don't get no nothing, but a lot of headaches and a lot of toil but it's the love of music it's it's just what you got to do you know i tried everything i was a dj i was a roadie i was a publisher a writer you know i just music kept dragging me back even without pay even without prospects it's just i kept finding myself back in a band caring more about that than anything else yeah and then when you got in a band where you know like we're both in the rare situation that we got in bands that afforded us to make a great living and live comfortable lives without having to do something else and maybe could even go sit on a beach and eat papayas and smoke bong loads and stare at the sky, we keep playing yeah. and working and trying and trying to get better into, because it's just, it's a mission. It's a life's purpose. That's right. You know, every day I come into my studio here, you know, my day job now, I write opera and concerti for orchestra and fancy stuff. Um, and I just can't wait to finish breakfast, get in here and get moving yeah. after, you know, half, more than almost three quarters of a century I've been doing this and it just doesn't get old. Yeah, it never. It never gets old. How important for you for being good at, at composing and, and, you know, playing whatever instruments you're playing, mostly the drums, what I'm talking about, um, is how you take care of your body, like the physical aspect of playing. Oh, yeah. Uh, I've had all kinds of uh, wrist problems, but they've gone away by taking proper care of my wrist, proper warm up. You know, I saw Chad after a show. He's got his hands in ice packs. Uh, that's a good plan. I'm 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 too much of a lover of soft things. You know, I'm, I'm in a warm shower. We all have our different things, but you know, we're all in the business of making sure that our bodies can carry on and keep on doing this stuff, you know? Yeah. Uh, tonight, I'm, I'm, I'm Mr. Composer Guy. I'm going up to Pepperdine where they're doing the dress rehearsal of my oratorio for giant choir. It's called Satan's Fall. Wow. Next week, I'm going over to Philadelphia to play with Oysterhead, a jam band with Les Claypool and Trey Anastasia, where we just make stuff up for two hours, and it's ram a a real physical exertion. And I have to get ready for that. I have to 
And it's not discipline that makes me get on my drums, do my exercises, eat my Wheaties, get on the elliptical. It's fear. <laughs> I don't want to be on that stage without the, running out of gas. And so that desire to really take that opportunity to, when you play with less and when you play with Trey, you want to be in top form. And that just, that gets me over to the drum set, uh, whether I push myself, I don't have to push myself. I am dragged to it. Yep. I get it, man. And you know, it's just that feeling like fear, but also just joy too, right? Like when you're doing it, yeah. everything's working and everything's firing. Oh yeah. It's like everything. It's so fucking holistic. Your body, your brain, your spirit, everything is aligned and, and working. Yeah. Nothing like those endorphins that you get from playing a show. You can go on stage, yeah. you know, beforehand you got a stomach ache, you got a toothache, uh, you know, you got all, Everything. The minute you walk out on stage and the show begins, you just get lifted up and taken along, and it's a ride. Yeah, man. Whether I'm playing with a fancy orchestra at, at a quarter volume or with less and tray, max, you know, big volume, it's a thrill, and the thrill lasts. Come off stage, and those endorphins don't quit. Yep. For hours. Yep. You know that's 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 why we got to do the 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 after show. Yeah. Is all about getting the sweat to stop flowing and getting the heart to stop over, you know, just getting back to normal is a process. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that a lot of, in the music world, why a lot of musicians have ended up having drug problems is because of that. Yeah. Wanting to, one, keep that high going from the show, and two, like, knowing how to adjust back to just being a guy sitting by himself in a hotel room at night <laughs> after the show. Oh, that's hard. Yeah. You, I always try and do a runner after a show because I don't want to be sick, stuck in a hotel room. Yeah, yeah. I'd rather be driving to the next city right. and wake up in the next city than, uh, yeah. than stuck in a hotel room yeah. uh, with a heart still pounding. Yeah, yeah. No, I've, I've, <laughs> I've had many of those nights. You know, when by the time we come off stage, the hotel bar is closed and... Uh, you know, it, that after show is a, is a process. Mm. Yep. Hey, when you made those police records, you had been, you know, you, you, you grew up, you started playing drums. You went back to England to boarding school when you're a teenager. And I imagine at that time, being a, a drummer, being a teenager, being in London, you were exposed to all different kinds of rock music and like a, a real kind of, I, I think that's a pretty explosive time. What, what year is that? Like, what year is that in London? We're talking um, late 60s, uh, early 70s. <laughs> Man, there's a lot of, and, you know, for rock music. It was Jimi Hendrix, Doors, uh, Beatles, Stones, Cream, all that stuff. But for me, you know, I appreciated the Beatles and the Stones because they were kind of like the mainstream. But really, it was all about Jimi Hendrix and Cream for me. Like, for me, that band, the Jimi Hendrix Experience... I think more than any other band was able to have this like youth culture, rebellious spirit, rock star, beautiful, awesome thing married with complete virtuosity. Yeah, absolutely. Even when they're playing their best shit, it always feels like, man, they could do anything. Yeah, you're so right. They had no business being at the top of the charts with chops like that. After the final break, Stuart talks about when the police went to band therapy and their unique way of recording new music. So you start, the police gets together, right? And I know it's your history and it's the past, but 
for someone like me growing up, The Police is one of the greatest rock bands of all time. And I think that one of the things that makes it great, and this is from my own objective perspective, is that everybody in the band is so different. Yeah. And everybody, the three of you each bring something completely different to the band. Different set feeling of what rhythm is, of what music is, of the way of looking at it. And, but, but the reason it's great is because you're all working, you know, it's obviously it's a trio and you, you're all working to bring something together. But if anyone, if you were just like trying to be like Sting or Andy was trying to be like you or whatever, it could never have been great because then it would have just been like everyone repeating one another. But with everyone bringing something different, and I know this because when my band is at its best, we're all really different too. It can be emotionally very difficult because everyone's fucking different. Yes, and so that's right. What makes it great also makes it really fucking difficult emotionally. That's so true. And I'm sure you have the same feeling is that you're at each other's throats and making your records is hell on earth. But when you finish and you look back at the result, you know, it was kind of worth it. It kind of worked. I'm glad that that Sting got in my grill and made me not do what I wanted to do. And I just, have, okay, asshole. Yeah, yeah. I'll do this. Yeah. You know, and that turned out, whoa, I'm really glad I got that push. And all three of us, you know, Andy was the, the, the most nudgy member of all. No, not good enough. Try, let's do something, you know, uh, too, too normal. Yeah. And he drove us nuts. We wanted to throttle him. And Sting had, you know, we didn't realize this at the time. You've probably figured this out while you're still a band. But we didn't figure this out until years later when we did a reunion tour. And we were wondering why everyone was having the best tour ever from the catering to the promoter to everybody except for two guys. And so, we, you know, I said, I want band therapy because I'd heard the Stones had it. And so we actually had a counselor come down, like a marriage counselor, and made us say stuff and got it all said and blew each other's minds. And we realized that it wasn't because we were trying to destroy each other. It's for perfectly valid, honorable reasons that we had conflict, that we really strongly believe in how music should be. Now, as a younger sibling, I am a little more malleable, and I recognize that there is more than one musical truth. But Sting, as the eldest in his family, uh, was not quite so malleable. And for him, any any infringement on the perfection of his vision was very difficult for him to deal with. And by the way, he did deal with it um, because he understood the synergy and he understood the codependence in the early days, at least. And he was actually against his grain. He was quite gentle. And we held on to him for like probably three albums longer than we deserve because he's a team, you know, he actually was a team player, but he had, a, you know, he had just this, this, very clear vision of what music should be, as we all did, which made it very difficult for him to deal with compromise and for us to deal with his difficulty with compromise. But at the end of the day, after all that struggle, I think all three of us are pretty pleased with the result. Yeah. I mean, the result is incredible. And it's amazing that you guys got to a place where you could look at it like that and see like, wow, that was painful to go through that conflict, as I'm sure it was, because you make yourself so vulnerable in a communal creative situation. Oh, yeah. Being in a band is actually very vulnerable. Yeah. It's sort of like siblings, but you, but you don't, you're stuck together. Yeah. You can't grow off and have a different career. You're stuck with each yeah. other. It's sort of like a marriage, but the sex is terrible. Believe me, I know. <laughs> so it kind of leads me to my next 
comment and something that in another part of music education is understanding. And we both come from a time where when you recorded a record, the three of you, or for my case, the four of us, you get in a room together, there's a reel of tape that goes around in a circle and you play live together and you get a good take. You play the stuff. Yeah. And you might think, oh, let's lay back a little bit in the bridge. Let's push into that outro. Let's create, get, get real hard and maybe ahead of it and then bring it back for whatever. You know what I mean? For the, and all these, like the, these little things that you do when you're tracking music together as it relates to music and serving the narrative of the song, so much of that has to do with how you're feeling emotionally. Oh, yeah. And emotionally, you're not feeling that great because outside of that band room, you are God on earth. You are, the, you are the towering bass player that kids all around the world seek to emulate your magnificence and your genius. In the band room, you're a piece of shit. Yeah. Well, when someone mad dogs you, when you fuck up a take. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The only place you don't get no respect is with your own band. Yeah. yeah. Well, let me ask you, did you, do you guys rehearse your songs before you get to the studio? Yeah, completely. Really? We never did. Oh, okay. In fact, all those police records, I heard the song for the first time. This is a very clever technique that Sting had. He would only reveal his songs one at a time. And so I'd hear a song, Spirits in the Material World, any, any of them. And 15 minutes later, I'm doing a take. And I just heard the song 15, 20 minutes ago. Uh, we do two or three takes, and that's, I'm stuck with that recording for life. Now, they get to do their uh, guitar and vocals and everything for the next two months, overdubbing and replacing and finessing and everything. But th those drum tracks are whatever I came up with on the spot. And of course, this seems like a terrible injustice, except that once again, I'm kind of pleased with the result. It kind of didn't suck to have that exploratory feel as the music was going down. Do you think that they, did they do that on purpose because they, they thought you were at your best when in that, that moment of learning and like kind of the naivete of not really knowing and just like doing what you were best at as opposed to really orchestrating your part? What a warm, cuddly thought. They never thought I was at my best. <laughs> they do now, but uh, yeah. No, I don't think it was as calculated as that. I think, you know, we would all show up for an album. Yeah. And we'd all have songs. We all loved our songs. We all wanted our songs to be on the record. Yeah. Uh, only problem was, uh, you know, I'd get there and I'd play them my songs. And the first one, oh, cool, cool. And the second one, eh, eh. The third, by the time the fourth song, along, uh, they're all staring at the floor, not knowing where to look. And, but when Sting would pull out a song, we'd all go, let's play that. Yeah. And uh, so he learned, don't pull them all out at once so they can be judged. Pull them out as needed, uh. which is a very clever technique. And by the way, it worked out pretty well. Uh, you know, we wouldn't, you know, he'd say, uh, we, we'd, we'd try one of Andy's songs or one of my songs and, uh, okay, Stingo, what do you got? He said, well, it just so happens. I've got a little song called Every Little Thing She Does Is Magic. Uh, how do you like this? And uh, that would become the focus of our attention right there. We'd forget whatever songs we'd brought to the party. By the way, we had to bring those songs because if we showed up in the studio and there was only one guy who showed up with songs, that's like there's only one guy doing any work around here. So even if he had no intention of playing our songs, he wanted us to show up with songs. And I've, you know, I've made use of those songs over the years since, but I was real glad that he pulled out those songs that he pulled out. In your band, what is the dynamic of the songwriting? Do you each bring in songs or you do jam and then somebody comes up with a lyric or what's your, uh, your... In our situation, um, we jam a lot 
and come up with grooves and things and it'll be like, ooh, that's really good. Let's or we'll just be jamming and Anthony will hear something and start singing on it and then like, ooh, that's that's good. Like normally he won't sing on something unless he really thinks it's a song. And then that'll be a jam and then we'll be okay, that's a good verse or it's a chorus. Let's write a bridge and a other whatever else it needs, if it needs something. Or sometimes it might just be that jam is the whole song. But oftentimes... God, how collaborative. Wow, you got to work with each other. You got to trust each other. Yeah. You got to work with each other. Yeah, and, and, and it's very spontaneous. But then oftentimes John Frusciante, our guitar player, will come in with chords and melody. Sometimes maybe just a bridge and a chorus, but oftentimes a whole thing. And he's really good at it and way better at it than me. And how did that go down with the rest of the band? It's great. We're just happy. Really? You're just happy to just lay in there whatever his concept is? Sure. Okay, I'll do that. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is great. I mean, there's a freedom for us, of course, to you know express ourselves within this context. But it's so good. There's no question. This is just great. And we all put in our two cents. Sometimes it changes and shifts. Sometimes it doesn't. But And then I do the same. I, I write songs. I write at the piano now. I didn't used to. And I'll have, you know, chord structures and things for whole songs. And oftentimes just bass lines, a series of bass lines that go together to form a song. Or just a part. Like, I know this is a really good verse. But I'm not as good as John at songwriting. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not. I, I try. He's just so good at it. And he's so disciplined. And he studies the craft so deeply. And he's just innately sensitive. His ear is incredible. And I was funny, like listening to you talk and I'll think like, man, like I used to get really jealous. Like, well, they don't like my song. My song's good. You know what I mean? But his was better. <laughs> yeah, I know the feeling. You know, in mind, like I did my best. You know, like, I, I am nothing. I am no one. Yeah. And I, I don't like he's able to sit still for hours and play and work. And I don't it's hard for me to sit still that long. But anyways, but what I was going to say is just that I know when I'm playing. And if I'm mad at someone in the band or I'm absolutely in love with them and like, oh my God, I love this person so much and they're playing so beautifully and I feel completely connected or the times when I feel anxiety ridden or afraid or I can't or I want to go home or I'm sad or my light white girlfriend left me or whatever it is, um, it really affects the way that I play. But the realness of the feeling and using music to express that emotion has a lot to do with my education as a human being and as a musician. And I wondered if that resonated with you. Well, it does. You know, music just makes me happy making it. I love it. I love the sound of it. I love, you know, what happens when I make it. Uh, but in life, you know, heartbreak and all those things that you mentioned kind of exist on a parallel universe. And no matter how good you are at music, you can still walk away from the music and five minutes later be miserable. Yeah. And I know that in Montserrat, we are in paradise on this island in the, in the uh, Caribbean, in this idyllic, beautiful surrounding, making music that the world really wanted to hear. We're so validated and, you know, it was really good music. But at the same time, our hearts aching with anger, with uh, self-doubt, with uh, all kinds of bad brain chemistry. Uh, but the music kind of exists in a different universe. And then, you know, although I'm kind of happy now in my 70th year with my seven kids and a pretty enviable life, I guess, I got nothing to complain about. So maybe that the music has helped, certainly gotten me to a place where I live in a nice house and I live a decent life, but they're kind of separate. Mm. 
Yeah. But I guess like when I hear you talk about being there in Montserrat and recording and feeling all those feelings of angst and self-doubt or, you know, all these difficult feelings that when you're trying to do something great and you're not going to settle for some rote thing just to put out a record and get your money, you really care about it. If we did accept some rote thing, life would have been a lot easier. Yeah, but the music wouldn't have been as good. Exactly. And in that yearning and in that reaching and in that trying, and you're trying to do something that you don't know because you, you're not, it's like, I think without those feelings of fear and self-doubt, you can't do something great. Maybe you can, but I'm not aware that that's possible. And I don't think that any growth, including musical growth, is possible without fear and pain and, and uh, you know, just the doubt and the anxiety of staring into the void. Well, you need to live the full gamut of human emotion and experience. Yeah, man. Stuart? Man, I, we could talk all day. We'll have to just shoot the shit one day. Yeah, absolutely. Um, please stay in touch, and I will too. And thank you so much for your time, Stuart. You're awesome. It's a pleasure. Hope you got a show. I hope you enjoyed my conversation. That was Stuart Copeland. It was great to get to speak with him. Thank you so much for listening to this little light a podcast about music education that exists to serve the Silver Lake Conservatory of Music, a nonprofit music school based in Los Angeles, California. This Little Light is a presentation of Cadence 13, executive produced by Flea, Chris Corcoran of Cadence 13, and parallel partners Ken Cow, Nicholas Gonda, and me, Jocelyn Florence. The show's lead producer is Julia Smith, with engineering by Ryan Martz. Our show's original theme music is composed by Flea himself, Special thanks to Chris LaSalle, Alex Barron, Ian Turner, and Jennifer Ray and her entire team at the Silver Lake Conservatory of Music. Listen and follow This Little Light, a presentation of Cadence 13, on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.